Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, while bows return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and I'm feeling an overpowering sense of impending bloody doom about today's episode. I, I feel it as well, Matt, but... I'm sure if we just bull ahead thoughtlessly, we'll be able to dodge any obstacles in our path and emerge victorious. Anyway, this is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of unhinged goddesses, tunnel adventures, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, in the aftermath of Victoria's fight with Lung, where she captain-planeted her differing identities into one form, Victoria is forced to deal with the scariest question of all. What's next? Goddess is coming increasingly unhinged, and she's got a and Victoria has to balance her loyalty to the Blue Lady while still looking out for her teammates and trying to do what's right. Matt, what do you think about these two chapters? Which I forgot to say which ones they are. They are nine dot twelve and nine dot thirteen. These were two really fun chapters. Um, I, I I don't I don't know what better word encapsulates like the joy with which I read these. I'm not even sure <laughs> why exactly these struck me like. 9.12, I, I just like was smiling while reading almost in its entirety. Um, Just really great, really fun. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely like, we just had this big moment, right? This, this big moment for Victoria and this big action sequence. And these are definitely like aftermath chapters. And it's leading into something else, of course. But the, the first one in particular is definitely like, okay, that's done. Well, what's now what? Mm-hmm. Now what? And I, I really like that idea, especially since... You know, we talked about this so much last week, how Victoria was making choices that are like, okay, we got to get through this right now. And then we got to deal with tomorrow after that. And well, we're dealing with tomorrow now or or later that day, rather. But um, I I really liked how Victoria is kind of struggling and being pulled in different directions and and kind of having to bend in some ways that uh, she hasn't in the past. Yeah, that's a really good point. That that that's that kind of thinking makes me realize how interesting it's going to be to reflect on Arc Nine when it's done because so much has happened in this arc. It's just been this acceleration of both the plot movements and the character yeah. growth moments. Uh, and uh, it, it, I I almost don't like remember what happened at the beginning of Arc Nine. And by almost, I mean I don't. Yeah, I mean, um, it, so yeah, I think it's the longest one we've had so far, and it's not just length of chapters; it's it's number of events. You're absolutely right. There's a lot that goes on in this thing. Um, I, I I think we're we're approaching the end here, uh, probably next week. So yeah, I am looking forward to that overall talk about the arc as a whole and rereading it and as a whole chunk too. So I can't wait to get to that. But first, we've got to get to these two chapters. That's right. So announcements up front. Uh, the We've got Ward Halloween costume <laughs> contest uh, ends November 1st. So since everyone will be going as something parahumans themed for Halloween, just take a picture of yourself. Uh, make sure you send us that uh, selfless picture that Scott keeps talking about. Yeah, yeah, I do have something. To, it, if you're just going to do a picture of you in business casual and say it's one of the characters in the, the thing, that doesn't count. I mean, it was I, funny. I laughed when you sent the email person, but that doesn't count. <laughs> I think you know that doesn't count. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it goes up to a vote for the patrons, so that's true. You know, that's true. Yeah. Uh, all right, so community spotlight where we read what people wrote from last week's thread. The discussion question last week was: self identity has been a major theme in Ward. 
what does the text say about the nature of identity and how identity shifts over time? You know, Matt, we said this was an English like literature studies type of question prompt. And that's the kind of responses we got to um, people wrote very, very long, lengthy essays, essays that I had a lot of trouble, you know, breaking down and summarizing in any kind of way to capture their main idea. Um, but I suggest that you go check those out. We're going to we're going to make an attempt, but but it's one, another one of those threads I really want. To, some people are afraid of Reddit, Matt, and I understand that. <laughs> believe me. Um, but I, I really think this this thread and this community is is a, an exception to that. Yes, the Parahumans subreddit is an oasis. And you'll be <laughs> safe there. All right, but let's get into it. First, we have up Clarno, who wrote an entire whole essay, just like we were talking about. Uh, Clarno talks about how physical and personal identity in the story are equally important, and how it's it's how these two things that tie together that show Wildbow's strength as a writer. They say that since Wildbow is an awesome writer, these two layers of identity are not separated; they mingle. Victoria wants to be a better person who thinks through. Th- thinks things through and de-escalates problems, but her trauma related to her physical identity leaves her with emotional problems and triggers that interfere with those attempts. Tristan and Byron have fundamental differences in personality that are thrown in high contrast by their physical situation. This is good writing. It shows the complexity of the issues while being thematically resonant. I agree. Uh, as to what all this means, Clarno links that to the second half of the question you asked, that is the how identity shifts over time. They state that forgiveness is a big theme the book is tackling, and and with how the shifting identities tie into that theme, that idea, that theme of forgiveness. For a lot of people, Calerno states, forgiveness is fundamentally tied to whether or not the transgressor has changed. Have they learned from the bad thing that they did? Have they become the person who won't do that thing again? But this is this changing just for the sake of forgiveness? Is that enough? Clarno thinks that's that's one of the things that the book is exploring, and they finish up their essay with, um, I think that's a lot of what Ward is going to be about, changing yourself for the higher purpose of self-actualization and fulfillment, not simply for the forgiveness of others. That was my attempt to summarize this essay that was four times as long as that. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah, um, I, I don't think I'm going to elaborate too much on that because it... it stands on his own, I think. Yeah. One of the things, I mean, like we're doing this, these things where you ask questions like this book is dealing with this. What does this mean? And of course the book has not like revealed its full conceit yet. Right. Like we need to see how things end to know really what the book is specifically saying about these things, but you can kind of see the, the tracks being laid. And a lot of these questions have answers to the effect of, um, I think what it's exploring is ideas related to this and we'll see, um, how, how it actually, pans out yeah that that's very interesting because i think it's safe to say that we've known what the major themes were going to be for a long time but where the story actually comes down on those themes is still up in the air yeah and i think one of the things that i like about wildbow's writing is that he doesn't even if he has like a central like conclusion behind those those themes it's not simple it's not like it's not something you could put into one one sentence right like i think the idea of trauma and bullying that there was a through line through worm there was not a simple conclusion about that it was it it wasn't open-ended but it was like look this is complicated there are many different layers to it it's it's very gray and i think i think we're going to be see some similar things to the conceit of the the themes in this book yeah that that's a great point there's there's not just one thesis that that worm was making i don't think um, all right, next from uh, Cal Subaloo. 
they argue that Ward doesn't explore one specific way identity can be prescribed, but instead offer a variety of different ways. They basically say, we have characters who force themselves to adopt a particular identity, like Veil 4, and characters who have an identity forced upon them, like Swansong. We've, we have characters who chafe at how others have defined them, who seek to uh, re- redefine themselves against that pressure, like Rain, and who embrace the pressure and internalize it, like Kenzie. We've also seen how self-identity can shift over time without anyone intending for it to happen, like Byron, or how it can be pushed along by outside influences uh, I, via, via goddess, I suppose, or, yeah. or seen in goddess as well. Um, Kalsubalu also chooses to focus on our protagonist and how her identity is shaped. And uh, it's complicated. They say that she's a person very much defined by her history, both the tragic and the good. And she's also a person who actively and intentionally tries to redefine herself in the present to try to be a better person and a better hero. We have seen the core of her identity and we've seen it shift over the events of Ward, sometimes slowly, sometimes suddenly, sometimes through internal effort and sometimes due to her environment. So basically all of these different ways and, and means that uh, identity can interact with with the world and with other people are all sort of being explored simultaneously via other characters and also kind of in microcosm in our protagonist. Yeah, I think that was a really great summary of that. It, it, I, that was really fascinating. I like, again, Wild Bo is not limiting himself. Like he's he likes to explore likes to take a central theme and then explore it from kind of every angle, right? So we we take this idea of identity. He's not satisfied with just exploring one aspect of it. He wants to see all sides of it. And I I, th- I like that a lot. Yeah, me too. All right, Beard of Valor thinks that Ward explores identity and now characters can shift from being defined to self-actualizing and defining oneself. Uh, their example of this is Sveta is a monster created by an ends justify the means thing and she's the means, but she's also a hero and has found fledging love. Ashley was defined by finding self-importance and purpose and recognition, but now she acknowledges that she's broken and not just by Bonesaw and um, she's working on becoming the kind of person who would benefit from a team of people with brains, um, which is a, a reference, I think, to one of our chapters in this reading. And, and I like that idea a lot, this, this, this kind of shift from passive to active, from being defined by other people to grabbing the reins of that and defining yourself. And I think that's, you know, an important part of kind of re- recovery from trauma. It's, it's you, your trauma has defined you and you have to find a way to redefine yourself around that trauma. Who are you, who you were before has, has been impacted by something and you need to, to find that and grab onto that, grab onto those reins. I like that a lot. Yeah, me too. I mean, Ashley's character is definitely one of the ones that jumps to mind immediately when you're thinking about the whole idea of self-identity because she's uh she's a weird case yeah. but but also somehow very easy to relate to yeah and I think we're going to be talking about the Ashleys quite a lot in this uh this week's chapters yep yep all right from Tisarwat they wrote an essay literally a whole essay with citations and everything <laughs> um about exploring LGBT identity and how it relates to Wildbow's work and they say civilian slash cape separation has a serious impact on identity a lot of people enforce the separation so they can distinguish the acts of oneself from those of the other. But that is often a weakness. There's the concern about revelation and the risk of either side bleeding through into the other. When Taylor is at the town hall and shit goes down, she's limited by being with her dad, being unwilling to reveal her blindness to anyone because it's a cape injury. 
In contrast, one of her most badass moments is when the wall has been torn down, albeit without her consent, in the cafeteria scene. This is a fairly easy comparison to being in the closet. Um, so, but more than how cape identities reflect these people, Tisarwat also explores some LGBT characters in the story itself, namely Circus, Fur Kate, and Legend, noting how these characters use their cape personas to express identity. Or in the case of Legend, how merely being both a gay man and a huge hero has helped. Um, and I think, uh, I'm, I don't think we're going to be able to do this essay <laughs> justice uh, without reading it all, but um, go check it out in the Reddit thread. Yeah, I, this is, uh, all you guys did great. We didn't even get to cover them all this week, but um, th- this one was literally like a designed essay with its citations to studies about um, LGBT people and the struggles of both being in the closet and the struggles of coming out while not being accepted. And it's, it's a great read. Check it out. Check out the thread. Once again, don't be afraid of Reddit in this one case, the, the, the only time. Yeah, that's right. Um, all right. So wrapping up the, the discussion from the thread, um, just kind of general points that were made. Kyrgyzstan points out the, the difference between how Byron and Tristan describe their brother's experiences while sitting on the sideline. Byron always treats Tristan's movements and actions as distinctly Tristan's, as in Tristan moved his arm, whereas Tristan still claims ownership even while not in front, as in Byron moved their arm. Yeah, this was something they called out to us, and um, basically the reason we didn't talk about it is because... Uh, I missed it, Matt. I I didn't catch that on my reread. So it's just something I just flat out didn't see. And I wish I had because I love it. It's just a small little beat that reflects, you know, both of their situations. Byron clearly draws a distinction between the two of them. Um, he, he is when he is not in control, it is not his body anymore. Tristan, whether it's whether he's in control or not, it is always at least partially his body. And I think that's that's a really great way of clearly defining the differences between the two of them. But I wonder if uh, Tristan thinks of it as as their arm when Tristan is out and controlling the body. Yeah, I I don't believe so. Yeah, Um, I don't think he does. Yeah. (laughs) All right, let's get on into these chapters, Scott. All right. We open 9.12, and uh, the beginning of this chapter is rough from a podcasting perspective because (laughs) we have to stop and talk about pretty much every sentence for the first five, five paragraphs. So we open with Goddess complimenting Antares for saving the day but accusing her of being mercurial, then offering her a lesser country if she comes back to Shin with her. Uh, in the midst of this rain, we get we get rain reacting from the peanut gallery. A country, wow. So, yeah, good stuff. <laughs> you know, I was a bit worried regarding what the short-term value rain would be able to contribute to the story right now. Um, you know, he, he had such great progress in the early parts of the story. Um, and then, then what, um, this isn't to say that I think rain is like done in the story. I think he's got a lot more to do. Um, we have obviously two cluster mates out there still hunting for him. So his story, his arc is far from resolved, but, um, in the, in the intermediate, he, he didn't have a lot to do. And I think part of, part of the reason why I felt he was kind of thrown in prison and kind of shuttled out of the main story, um, at least partially for a bit was because um, he was kind of in stasis waiting for his the next part of his story. But he's back in it now, Matt, and he's he's great. <laughs> he's so great. He's he's kind of like naturally switched into this comedic relief role. And I think Rain was always kind of a comedic relief, but 
it was different before. Um, like he's less of the bumbling, incompetent loser and more of the, oh man, bad stuff just keeps happening to this guy. And he's, he's trying. <laughs> and I think that's what, what I get here with this beat. And then much further in the story is, as bad things keep happening to him. He's kind of like bad stuff happens, but he's, he's rolling with it. Yeah. Yeah. He's just kind of the, the butt of all the bad stuff. I like your observation. It serves the story really well that he was not around and that, that isn't a dig on rain. Um, it, it's just the idea that you have two, two of the team members in prison actually, um, allows the story to focus on the other characters a lot more during a time when that was really necessary. And I think yeah. if, you know, keeping all of these characters developed is kind of a spinning plates thing where you just, you have to touch base with them. If they're around, you have to show how they're reacting if they're around. And so sometimes it's easier for them to just not be around so that you can focus, focus in more. Um, and now, now I think this is the time in, in the story when we get everyone back together. But, and I think it's also interesting that now that we've got everyone back together, the first thing that happened was they were split apart again so that we, you know, we can keep the team focused a little bit more on, uh, Victoria, Capricorn, um, Rain, Kinsey, and, uh, the new Ashley. Yeah. I, I like what you said there. Um, I, I don't, I don't think it's just that it's easier. I think it absolutely is easier, but I don't think. I don't think Wild Bo likes things without intent behind them. You know, I, I don't get that feeling from his writing. So like if you have a character that's just like has no immediate purpose, um, like he, he's, his arc isn't advancing at this at this moment. He's not doing a lot. Um, it's it's much better, it seems, to just remove him from the equation than to just have him sitting there kind of just there but in stasis so um we get to see like rain is off he's off doing his own stuff like there's still stuff happening to him he's kind of adjusting to life in prison and and kind of adjusting to life after after killing someone um but he doesn't need to be the focal point so yeah it, it's it's easier and i think just it fits wild Bo's sensibilities a lot yeah cool uh, so the next thing that happens is uh of course victoria denies being mercurial yeah, certainly the girl who just spent the entire last chapter jumping from personality to personality couldn't possibly ever be described as mercurial at all. Yeah, at all. Oh, and especially not from the point of view of Goddess, who met her being all professional, but trying to cover up her anxiety yeah. and then almost killing her sister in violent anger and then coming through and saving the day. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really like that. It's it's great as a reflection of how Victoria is perceived by the people around her, right? Because she's constantly internally working through stuff and and she's in her mind grabbing on to these different personalities, these different identities, these different aspects of herself to do it. But from the outside, what's that seen as as just like someone who appears to randomly switch moods mm -hmm. at the drop of a hat and, and like. I, I, I think that's so fascinating. And, and I think like in general, it's hard for people to figure out Victoria, especially people as um, let's see, how do I say this without being rude? Um, as dumb as goddesses. Sounds right. Yeah. I also really like how Victoria, like in, in this moment where she's like, I'll give you a city or a country. Um, she kind of contorts her way into saying no without really saying no. Like her argument is, I'm a city girl. I want to stay in the city. And that's one of those things that's like technically true. She does like the city and she wants to help this city. But like, 
there's probably a city in that country. She's going to get like, it's just like one of those things that it's like, it's technically true. And it, it's her wiggling away and into saying no without saying no, but, um, but still very much under goddess's whole deal. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's also funny because goddess, like if she really wants Victoria, she's just going to take her. Right. So it's right, almost right. like she, she doesn't really respond to Victoria's refusal because it's a pretty worthless refusal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the two of them, the, the goddess and Victoria try to work through what's going on because goddess is feeling some funky stuff with her danger sense. Uh, all we know at first, like at the beginning of the chapter is that Blindside and kingdom come have probably gone to the access tunnels where the breast, where the rest of breakthrough was headed. Yeah. And I think this is setting up our, our big conflict of the early part of this chapter. Victoria wants to make sure her teammates are okay. That's what she wants to do right now. The battle is over. She's in the aftermath. I want to go after my teammates. I want to find them. I want to make sure they're okay. It's been too long. Um, goddess wants her to stay here. She doesn't want her to do that. And, and I love, this is in my mind, us really starting to push hard against the edges of goddess's compulsion, something that'll become very much more apparent later in this chapter. Um, but, but like Victoria is still mind whammied here. Right. But, but look at how she complies. Like, it's not just, she's saying yes anymore. Like stay goddess said her voice firm. My jaw clenched. I nodded. Sorry. Her jaw clenches, Matt. It's, it's acquiescence. Like in the the strictest sense of that word, like she's doing it. She doesn't definitely doesn't want to, and she doesn't feel good about it at all. Yeah. There's, there's moments here where, like uh, the way I read her internal monologue or, or, or her thought process is like just absolutely repeatedly changing gears to try to find some angle on what she's thinking that will pass muster with, with the compulsion because yeah, she yeah. like the first, like three thing, the first like three approaches are not goddess aligned approaches. And so she just kind of like stands there. <laughs> so you can just kind of imagine like this conversation pretty much after this point, like God is staring at her and then her like standing there looking back kind of like click were click were in her head as she's like tries to find a way to be aligned. And it's just so against her nature to do it that, uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, the, the, the strain is building. Um, and it's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, it really is. So Victoria briefly flies over the group of over uh, to the young group of capes who've been tasked with guarding the humans. And basically she's visiting in with Natalie um, and she hopes Natalie will say something to her, but she doesn't. And then one of the youths gives Victoria some lip, but then the leader of the youths appears to defer to Victoria out of respect for her service in Gold Morning. Yeah, this this whole scene is really interesting to me. I, I think it's actually like low key, pretty important. Th- there are two things going on here. Victoria is trying to make sure Natalie is OK. But I think more than that, she's she's trying to make sure if Natalie has any like orders for her. Um, like, remember, she's basically put Natalie in the position of the de facto leader because the master stranger protocols say that she's the one in the chain of command. She's the only one that's unaffected. So I think she's like. Victoria's kind of lost and she doesn't know what to do and she's torn and pulled in these different directions and, and none of it feels right. And I think it's it's checking on Natalie, making sure Natalie's doing OK. Yes. But also like, hey, t- tell me, tell me what I should do now. <laughs> Give me what, what, what how we can what do we do? What do we do? Yeah, especially after this interaction with Goddess where it's it's just like pure torture for her. And 
she just doesn't even know what direction to point. Like, basically, I think her problem right now is, like, by default, she's just like, well, shit, I guess I just have to do whatever Goddess tells me to do because, like, yeah. I can't think around it right now. If I had if I had one person to just tell me, do that, then at least I could I could just just do that and be able to to hold on to my master stranger protocols but as it is he's just yeah, like well i have yeah. i have no other choice than to just do what goddess says yeah and and so that that's the one thing that's going on but the other thing that's going on is is this we have this whole interaction with these young capes and, and young like victoria makes a point to mention how young they are she kind of goes on a whole tangent about how young people trigger and these these are very young children that are in prison and now defend guarding the humans um and she kind of commands them and they push back against her until, like you said, they see the gold morning bracelet on her. And, and then the leader of them respects her now. Um, this is really interesting because the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is this happening right now? Like, why is this scene happening right now? We have Victoria in this moment. Um, why, why is this, why does this interaction occur? Um, is this just like a low key setup regarding a group of kid capes that we'll probably see again? Yeah, maybe. Um, is it a reminder about the gold warning, morning band that Victoria wears that might play like just a, a subtle reminder that, oh, yes, this thing still exists and Victoria is still wearing it. Um, so in case that can play off in the future, I could see that. Um, is it just a, just a quick jot to see how Natalie's doing? Yeah, it's probably that, too. But I think like anything in the book, it's it's doing more than that, Matt. And I think this gets into kind of a, a conversation about Victoria and um, the past and things in the past and, and how. Victoria as to Victoria, the past is important. Um, the things that we've done in the past and the things that have happened to us in the past are important and they matter. I, I, I go back to that um, conversation between Victoria and Ashley on the train when they had that interaction with uh, I forgot her name. What's the name of the girl on the train that, that takes her picture? They, they sent a picture to. It's not important. Um, that one um, and, and how much Victoria was like, no, you don't understand our interactions. What we do what we decide to do matters. It, 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 it like ripples out from there. And, um, we, we need like, that's, that's why doing the right thing is important. That's why making the right choices are important. That's why making the right, having the right impact on people is important. And in this moment where Victoria is kind of lost and unsure what to do and, and her, her mantras and stuff are kind of not feeling right. She gets this little beat of, enforcing like hey you were part of this thing and because you were part of this thing because of the past i i grudgingly respect you yeah and she doesn't even know how to handle it in that moment and i i i love her like fairly awkward um reply of she's just like good man okay yeah that was Big really gulp, huh? it was really awkward wasn't see it see you later <laughs> yeah um which i mean is is very realistic cuz she doesn't she doesn't think of that as something that she's like owed credit for but, right. but that doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter whether she thinks that it, that it is, right? And I think that's an interesting um, framing yeah. of, of, like, the consequences of your actions uh, can be things you have no idea about. Yeah. And we see that she kind of doesn't trust them at all still. Even though he says this, he, like, he gives her, like, I'm going to listen to you because I respect that you were involved in this big event. Um, but then one of the things she does later is send someone else, someone worse to go check, check up on Natalie because she does, she's not really trusting of these kids. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting reaction in that it both, I think has positives and negatives, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, there's a lot to think about there. I agree. Um, 
So, hey, remember when Victoria kind of noncommittally implied that she would get Cole Belcher out of jail? And, well, turns out that he's interpreting all these events as Victoria coming through on her word. Yeah, that was uh, fortunate, I guess. Yeah. She never said she was going to do it, but she didn't not not. I really liked how. And then so chain of events, right? I liked how that was set up because, I mean, when you know something's going to come of that when when yeah even at the time um and and it's 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 just nicely very subtly set up it's not distracting she's like yep she she has a, a very small small connection with one of the powerful prisoners and now she's calling it in and it was set up and it's good good writing yeah 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 um so uh we also learned that apparently goddess was a bit um taken aback by how strong lookout came on uh yep uh, so she placed her with Monokeros as a cat babysitter to her canary, um, which is just terrible. Um, yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, I, I don't know if we fully understand Monokeros's power, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we saw like she had the ability to make lookout like change directions and like beeline right for her. Right. Like so she has some kind of compulsion power of some sort, but um, we don't really know the, the full detail of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do really love the detail that like even for goddess lookout is a bit much like even for the person who was so used to like making people not worship is a strong word, but making people prioritize her above all else. She's like, eh, maybe, maybe slow it, slow it a little down here. This is a, this is a little too much for me. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny in its way because like you're taking the character who has these problems with, attaching herself to people and you're giving basically the power makes everyone attach themselves to goddess. Yeah. So it's like the worst possible thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, um, it is interesting kind of how goddess is subtly like playing into the worst, um, instincts of, of our, our main characters. Right. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Yeah. There's probably a lot to be dug into there. Yeah. So the team, talks about Monokuros a bit as if we're setting something up, uh, mentioning <laughs> that she's a horror story among capes and legitimately disturbs all of them. Victoria studies her smile and Byron remarks, she reminds me of, of someone Byron said, not all the time, but there. And then they're interrupted. Man, man, I can't tell you how many times I reread this passage trying to come up with an idea of who exactly Byron is talking about here. And if you'll indulge me for a second, and by a second, I mean like 10 minutes because it's like a page. Um, I'm pretty sure he's either talking about Tristan or Moonsong here. That's what from from my my extensive studies. That's who I've I've boiled this down to, Matt. And, and, and I think I think it's kind of meant to be ambiguous. Like, I think you're not supposed to be exactly clear who he's talking about. And And the cool thing about this is that either way, this tells us something important about Byron and his his current state. And who he is and then what's going through his mind right now. So um, I think we, we either way we break this down, it says something cool. So you want to yeah. yeah, walk it? me through that, Scott? All right. So first, we have to look at the line that that directly uh, preceded Byron's comment, just just to make sure we have context on what type of smile this is. Uh, Victoria says, Monacara smiled. It was the kind of smile that was practiced. 
then reused so many times it looked natural. A model smile. The smile of a hero who lived off their team brand, lived off their brand like a corporate and sponsored heroes and maybe small family teams with an up and coming generation of youths. So she's kind of putting on this 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 fake practice smile like it's 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 meant to manipulate people. It's meant to make people think certain things. Uh, there is there is specific connotation to a corporate hero, which doesn't specifically eliminate one or either of our choices. Um, but but the imagery is clear here. It's 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 a fake smile. It, it comes off as rehearsed and fake. It's kind of a mask in itself. Mm-hmm. So. Here's the case for this being Tristan, right? Um, in in chapter nine dot six, we have Byron discussing Tristan's smile, and he says, um, "He says I smile, and it's it's an expression. He smiles, and people like him." And then also in in nine y, um, we have him say Tristan's face stretched into a smile, white teeth showing, and we put on a face like like he was trying not to smile. It was forced acted. So we have we have a lot of there's a lot of discussion around smiles in relation to Byron discussing Tristan. Um, we also like, I remember you pulled up the, the stretching of the smile, right? That's something you mentioned back in that chapter that it wasn't just that he was smiling. It was stretching into the smile. We talked about how great that was. Um, so if, if this is Tristan or Byron thinking about his brother, I think, I think this would importantly fit into exactly how Byron has perceived Tristan in the past, in the interludes, a person who manipulates others into doing his bidding by putting a good face on things. He, he, he tricks people into liking him and then they do what he wants. Um, it's not exactly news that Byron feels this way about his brother, but I think it's interesting here because we're in a time frame where presumably the brothers have, a generally better attitude towards each other than they did in the interludes we've seen. Like they have improved somewhat, at least at the start of the story. Um, and, and things have been steadily getting worse throughout worm or ward rather. Um, but we've never seen Byron like audibly admonish his brother in the present day, right? All the, all the direct, like Tristan's terrible. Tristan's the worst has been in the past. So this is, um, this is him kind of connecting to connecting his brother to a psycho mass murderer. Um, but he doesn't just, he doesn't just make that connection. He like kind of caveats it where he's like, not all the time, but just specifically this one place. So he's like intentionally limiting the scope of his comment towards this one particular moment, this one particular action, this smile, which, um, if it is Tristan, I think this indicates that he's, he's being more, cautious and reserved in his judgment of his brother than we've seen in his interludes. Like he's kind of holding it back and not going full force into it. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. Like the, the first thing that, that jumps to mind is that like Tristan is watching at this very right. moment and it's super shitty to be like that guy, that, that serial killer right there reminds me of, <laughs> of my brother who can't, can't defend himself right now. So like, that's one reason why he would have like stopped himself from saying it. Um, right. But I also like, I, I just don't read the wording as him being like about to say like, fuck Tristan y'all. And then, and right. then stopping himself. It's more like he, he notices and, and maybe, maybe he was going to say Tristan, but if so, he, he didn't, he didn't mean it in a mean way. He probably, like you said, just meant like, the aspect of a well-crafted smile that, that that's practiced. Um, yeah. But you know, the thing about Tristan though, is that like, 
just because his like just because his smile is smooth and easy doesn't mean it's fake and artificial. And I don't, I don't right. think Tristan's smile is fake and artificial because he's also just as quick to anger. And I don't think he's particularly good at hiding his anger when he's angry. No, I think you're right. I think it's just the perception of that smile that that Byron has. Yeah. Um, and and I think I, I think that's that's what's so interesting about this. Like if if he was referring to Tristan here, it is saying that he is both a little more reserved towards his brother than he has been in the past, but also that he still recognizes some not goodness in his brother that he's relating to yeah. this. So I think it says something kind of about about his his opinion on the current state of their uh, relationship. Yeah. But who else could he be talking about, Scott? So he could be talking about Moonsong. And actually, uh, this is more interesting to me, um, the, the implications of this. So first we have kind of kind of the evidence um, in nine dot why Tristan comments on Moonsong's smile. He says uh, Brianna smiled with a politician's daughter smile practiced. We get the we get the specific connection to the line practice. Now, it is important to note here that that is this is this is Tristan noticing this, not Byron. Byron is not aware of this. In fact, when Byron describes Moonsong's smile back in his interlude, it's it's nothing but like positivity and love like um the first time he sees her smile, he kind of focuses on it and loses a bit and mentions like when he was looking at photos of the team, he hadn't even paid much attention to her. But seeing that smile, he was paying attention. And then later when they're having their conversation, we have he saw Moonso- Moonsong smile, red lipstick, almost pleased with herself or pleased with him. And he felt his heart skip a beat. So Byron has never kind of echoed Tristan's comment about Moonsong's smile being politician like or forced or, or practiced or anything like that. But the book still has drawn that line for us. It, it uses the word. In fact, it uses that word practiced. Um, now, now this this is where it gets interesting to me, because if this if he is thinking of Moonsong in this interest in this instance, if that's that's who he's relating this to. I think it shows that that he's had a changing of opinion on Moonsong a little bit, that 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 maybe what what Tristan saw is like the wool has been lifted from his eyes a little bit and he's seeing her as less a perfect person and maybe more of a, a nuanced, complicated, uh, interesting person that she is, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we know that something must have changed in some way, right? Because yeah. she, because Byron knows where she is. Byron actually communicated with her online in the in the prelude for long. Right. And neither of them was like, hey, let's meet up. You know, like, right. like it, they seemed friendly, but not like, yeah, friend. Right. So. So, yeah. So. So evidently something has changed between them man. and we don't know. Right. We don't know what it's going to be. But I, I think it is safe to assume that maybe Byron does have a different perspective on her now. Yeah. And I think I think the great thing about this is in either of these cases, I think what we're seeing here is like a, a snapshot, a hint at how Byron has changed, how this experience has changed Byron. We know, or at least we, we, we presume that whatever happens to, um, to Tristan's evil choice to take control and, and lie about Byron's death, whatever happens to end that and, and return them to a sharing kind of status quo thing. Um, Tristan harbors some guilt for that and has kind of at least on the surface tried to, to make up for that in certain ways. Um, 
but we hadn't seen like what the experience did to Byron and how it changed him and how his relationship with his brother is changed by this and how, um, and I think we're seeing him, we're seeing little hints of his change as well. And I thought that's really cool. And that's why I spent, you know, 10 minutes talking about this little tiny line that probably doesn't matter too much to the overall plot, but was just really a really fascinating window to me. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because it makes me want to go both reread that prologue chapter and also the chapter where, they run into Moonsong at the Warden's headquarters yeah. um, just to see like what, because Byron does interact with Moonsong there and it's like, well, what's, what is the vibe? You know, I I mean, I yeah. remember it, but I don't remember it well enough. And I, and I also had some um, totally valid suspicions of Byron at the time. So I probably wasn't <laughs> parsing things in, 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 in the correct light. Oh, uh, um, any chocolate anyway yeah anyway back to the book back to the book well i mean we were in the book but we just real yeah we were real we were deep. in literally one line of the yeah. book so goddess summons breakthrough back to herself and she kind of elaborates more she says her danger sense is on the fritz and she says my power is a feeling it can come from a direction it tastes of intent it has flavors depending on the kind of danger this tastes hollow and it feels big there's no direction to it the opposite, the lack of direction, is the danger. Have you felt anything like this before? I asked. I felt something roughly this big once. It was when the world was ending, the golden man. Um, so that's ominous, but don't worry, it might also just be Contessa. Oh, well, then that's fine, then. Yeah. Matt, I, I kind of I love this. I, I love that we're continuing to chip away at the block of marble that is goddess, Um like we see here some like underneath it all she's some with a danger sense so she's so used to kind of knowing exactly where where a threat is coming from how big the threat is um she, something she's very used to and this hollow this directionless threat has gotten her all d- discombobulated um wh- what you didn't mention before we got to this is that goddess just destroyed the building with all the food and drugs that made people immune to her after this. Like she's, she's lashing out and she just is like, like danger sense coming from everywhere. I must destroy this one thing. Oh shit. That didn't fix it. I still feel this. It didn't go away from that. I don't know what to do. And I, I really like this because the second these drugs were introduced, the second we had this idea of, Oh, there's a drug that makes you immune to goddess stuff. I was like, Oh, so how, that's, that's how this thing gets resolved for our teammates. This is like a, the, the breakthrough breaks, out of goddess's compulsion via these drugs that's the magical drug MacGuffin, um and the book then takes that away from us right it's we've basically taken that out of the equation it's like no that's not going to be your solution um and, and and now i'm kind of like starting to see the resolution here as as we we learn more about goddess we learn more about who she is like i'm starting to get the, the feeling that goddess's defeat is going to not come by the hands of some like MacGuffin. It's going to be her. She's going to be the tool of her own destruction. Yeah. Right. I mean, we see her basically flailing in this chapter. Yeah. She knocks down the building. I mean, and it's, it's so interesting to put yourself in her position as just someone who has such power that it's just so easy to, you know, say, okay, I'm going to knock down all those buildings. I'm going to go attack those people over there because, I have a hunch <laughs> and yeah. and it's just she she's just able to just kind of 
try yeah try so many things without really um it's it's almost out of i mean it is out of fear i was going to say it's almost out of panic but it, it's certainly out of fear yeah i mean we're going to this this kind of connection to to her power and and what that means for her as a person is is made more explicitly here in a minute and we're going to really dive yeah. into it there but i i really think we're like that's what we're kind of seeing as we go like the more and more we go goddess is becoming more and more unhinged more and more upset more scared and she's pushing and and as she's pushing as she's flailing the compulsion that is keeping these people around her is being strained because she's she's forcing them or pushing them more towards more and more towards things that none of these people are comfortable doing yeah exactly so she keeps kind of coming and going so she flies off again to try to work it out with some other capes and the team discusses amongst themselves what this could be. You know, they bring up possibilities, endbringers, plagues, horsemen, two consecutive references to other Wildo stories. I, I guess we're going to have to read Pact, huh? I guess. Yeah. Understand all this Didn't stuff. Get that one at all. We, we need to understand Pact to understand Ward. Clearly. Clearly. Um, we also learned that Damsel listens to audiobooks like me, because I guess both of us just tend to obliterate books. I think she has like a substantially better excuse than you do, Matt. Yeah. Does Pact have an audiobook? I, I don't know. This will presumably become very important to you in, I don't know, let's say 2020. Wow, that's optimistic. <laughs> uh, so Rain conjectures that this is a siege and the metaphorical portcullis came down while Goddess Danger Sense was dark during the pharmacist fight. And so she didn't realize it. And basically the idea being that teacher plans to starve them, either starve them to death or starve them into submission. And they relay this idea to goddess. Um, and she seems pretty upset and frightened, causing Victoria to speculate that goddess hasn't ever really had to struggle or to overcome any real challenges. Yeah. I love what this says about power um, and, 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 the weaknesses that having power can give you. I think that I don't remember who it was, but so apologies for not giving you credit, but I think it was someone either on the Reddit or a discord, um, mentioned a comparison of goddess to Taylor, right? Um, goddess is this person that's so powerful. She's never really felt challenged compared to a person whose power seems so like weak on the surface is nothing but challenged constantly. And I think this is a really apt comparison. I think goddess as a tool to explore um, what what true unearned power does to a person is really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, she's a very very cool villain. Basically, you know, exploring yeah. a lot of the themes of the story, and also just a really cool idea to have the, yeah. the realistic version of the ridiculously overpowered superhero supervillain. Yeah. I mean, and, and it, it is, it is so realistic is the perfect word. It, it is such a, of course, if you have always been the best, if you have always been the elite, you're not used to feeling insignificant. You're not used to feeling overpowered and it's scary and you don't know how to react to it. You haven't been trained to do that. Like if you're born rich, let's say like, the idea of being poor is not something you can really conceive. Yeah. Right. And she's never really, I mean, we don't know this for a fact, but it, she's probably very rarely been stressed and, and pushed and, uh, yeah, had to, it doesn't seem yeah. like it. It's like, like every, every 
bit of interaction we had with her before these last few chapters, she was always like the calm, composed person. Remember, like when we first met her, like she's casually walking in the rain, but just stopping the rain from hitting her. Like she's like this person who who comes off as so put together and 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 perfect and great and a, a goddess. And the, the, as soon as she's pushed, as soon as she's been like kind of forced into a wall or into a prison, like the her her true nature is coming out. Here. Yeah. And she's always had her minions to fight her battles for her, really. And, and that's, you know, I always, I don't think we ever talked about this back in the Worm podcast because, frankly, we didn't know that much about Goddess. We, we knew some. Mm-hmm. But there's the fact that when we first see her, she's having basically like a, a war council because she has detected that there's a terrible looming danger, doesn't know what it's going to be. <laughs> and then... Surprise! So, and then, surprise, she gets grabbed and, and you know, she... She almost gets out of Taylor's influence, actually, but 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 loses because Taylor's vastly more resourceful than her. And yeah. that's just like the perfect microcosm of her character is like you come up against somebody who's actually strong. And uh, yeah. yeah, and it makes me wonder what that experience did to her. Right. And, and maybe a lot of the lashing out, a lot of the, the panic, this, the fear in her right now is because she's remembering the one time. And this is conjecture. We don't know if it's the one time, but presumably one of the big times where since she got her powers that she has felt powerless and it's something she never wants to experience again. And so she is lashing out to prevent it at every possible way. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So Victoria really wants goddess to let her go after kingdom come and blindside, uh, to support her teammates and to remove any remaining threat to, of the ankle bombs going off. But goddess doesn't care about all that. She literally, shouts that she doesn't care um and i think like right now like we've been saying she only really cares about her own skin she doesn't care about anybody else and yeah she basically has to shout down victoria to stop her from arguing yeah this to me is just more evidence to what we were just talking about how this is to me how the team is going to Uh, break through goddess's compulsion. Uh, I mean, like, look, look at this interaction. Look at how this plays out. My teammates, goddess, I don't care. She retorted. Her voice was less of a shout as she spoke more of a hiss. We evacuate, figure this out. Yes. I was still, my thoughts stuck as I tried to figure a way to reconcile it. So many of the options available meant throwing away lives. Her stare was cold. She found world leaders and went after them one by one. She sank ships. She killed hundreds, even thousands. The eyes of someone that had killed thousands. All around me, killers, terrorists, kidnappers, and worse were staring at Goddess and me. So again, Goddess is pushing up against the, the limits of what Victoria is capable of. And in this moment, it almost seems as she, if she's like temporarily like jolted out of the compulsion. She no longer sees Goddess as this poor old person, this, this perfect person, this moral authority, like this person that's all the best at all the things. In this brief moment, she sees Goddess for what exactly what she is, a murderer, a killer, a horrible person, the the eyes of someone who has killed thousands and more in this moment where th- things appear to be like temporarily broken. She realizes that she's surrounded and and therefore allied with a group of people that are just the same killers, terrorists, kidnappers and worse that all these people are on her side and they're all looking at her and her, her interaction with goddess. And she's not out of it yet. Right. Like she, she definitely doesn't break. Like she's, it's not just like a, we flip a switch and now she's out of this compulsion, but we do see like 
it breaks for a minute. Like it, 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 it's torn down for a little bit. Yeah. She does keep having these moments where she'll kind of have her own thought and then her brain will just kind of make, just kind of smooth it over. Like, yeah, that's yeah. all right. I'll figure it out because the most important thing is to do what goddess says. Yeah. But this is, I mean, this is, this is the first moment I think since she's been taken over that she is direct in admonishing goddess as like a, and, and, and that she doesn't like recover from it quickly. Like I think it was last week where we said, I didn't like that she was doing this, but I could see, I could see her point of view here. I mean, she calls her a killer. Yeah. I mean, just, and, and toward the, toward the top of the, of the kind of paragraph structure, it says, um, I was still my thoughts stuck as I tried to figure out a way to reconcile it. So that's literally she's she she can't get past this obstacle of how many people are going to die. It's yeah. like it, it's it's literally like like we pointed out before and like the text is pointed out running up against that obstacle of like you're not capable. Basically, basically, this is goddess giving her an order that she is borderline and maybe even actually not capable of following. And this yeah. is how she responds to it. She 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 begins to see the cracks. Yeah, and I think I think as Goddess becomes more and more desperate, more and more pushed against the wall, she's going to be giving out more and more of these orders. And I think that's that's kind of where we're going is that she's going to eventually push again push these people to a point where they compulsion or not, they won't listen mm-hmm. and they will fight back. Yeah. I, I, another thing I like about this passage that you pulled out is the idea that she is a terrible leader because she doesn't have to be a good leader. Like she's, she's shouting at at a subordinate hissing at them, like basically, basically bullying Victoria, except Victoria isn't really one to be bullied. But the point is, um, she's, she's never learned how to actually lead people. She, she's, she just gets by on her power and everyone just complies. And that's, you know, a, a weakness actually. Hey Matt, I'm having a really hard time not, Relating this back to current real world political <laughs> situations, having a really hard time. We're not going to go into yeah. it, but it's definitely I there. Have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, there's another just kind of passage that everybody I think loved on the on the Reddit and etc. Seer was staring at me. He seemed to be amused that I was facing down goddess like this and I wasn't coming out ahead that or he was just enjoying himself and he looked like an asshole as a separate distinct thing asshole <laughs> she really doesn't like seer I, that's i love this because like she hates seer yeah. she hates him she, he's, he's an asshole he's a bad guy he's a killer she's working on the same side as him yeah. and that's like the whole ridiculousness of this whole thing is like she's surrounded by people that everything about her her code her her sense of morality Everything about her says these people are wrong. I like I should like they're bad. I would never work with them. I would never party to them. But the, the compulsion is such that she just is. And it doesn't make her hate them any less. It just means that at the end of the day, she'll still work with them. Yep. Yep. Um, all right. So Goddess now proceeds to preemptively attack the max security prisoners who've been who they basically suspect of having been given the drugs to make them immune to her. She topples one of their buildings and then orders Seer to go deal with them. Yeah. She's officially losing her shit and lashing out, but still making her minions to take care of it. Yep. Then things start accelerating pretty quickly. One of the maximum security prisoners approaches 
this area uh, with the disturbing shaker effect that begins to cover the whole area. The team splits up, Victoria looking for Cole Belcher, and we're not really sure why at first. Yeah, I, I love how Victoria describes that search for Cole Belcher, though. She relates it back to when she was flying around desperately looking for Amy because Dean was injured and she needed Amy to, to heal him. Um, my zigzag journey continued, haunted by the memory of what had had laid at the end of my last such journey. Then I'd been searching for the one face who might be able to help, and I'd been crushed on so many levels by the failure to find. In this, I wasn't even sure the face was an answer. So a lot of Victoria's present issues right now have to do with the fact that each and every choice she's making seems to be against her best instincts, right? Like her instincts are telling her things and she has to make choices because of the master stranger stuff that are against them. And this decision to seek out Cole Belcher is one of the biggest examples of kind of acting against instinct that we've seen. And I think the book choosing to relate this directly to a moment where she was, she was searching for Amy to save Dean, this, this, this horrible memory that she's connected to that a search that failed for a, a task that failed for something that was one of the worst moments in her life, I think accomplishes what the book is trying to do here, which is say like how much doing this, going down this road is tough for Victoria. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like you said, she's she's struggling with herself on like every possible level. And the fact that she's still willing to to adhere to the master stranger protocols, even when when there's she's got the compulsion working out, working against her. She's got the very fact that the person that she's going to be seeking help from is is a villain working yeah. against her because that like that's kind of against her nature anyway. But she just puts so much stock in that um, because it's rooted in these in these good things um, yeah. that are so core to her that, that she, she does it anyway. Yeah. And then we see in this moment that she kind of refocuses, right? Like she's she's lost. She's making this decision. She's going down this road. And then she takes a moment to kind of collect her selves. <clears throat> yeah. And she says, hit like glory girl, hold nothing back as the wretch, judge like the warrior monk, problem solve as the scholar, and don't lose sight of who you fucking are, because that's a metric shit ton to keep track of, Victoria. <clears throat> so this is kind of like, like her gathering herself. She's, she's preparing to do this thing, this big thing, and she's gathering herself for that move. And I, I, like I wrote here that Victoria has basically become like an entire party in an old school Final Fantasy game. <laughs> She's like the scholar, the monk, the wretch, the the the, glory, the, 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 the paladin, the, tank, the paladin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think I like I want someone make some eight bit art of Victoria in all four different ones, like a lineup. Like someone do that for me, please. I can't do it because I'm bad at art, but somebody art this. That would be it'll be really that'll good. Be excellent. I can't wait. Yeah. There's also something that jumped out at me here, Matt, on reread that I completely missed my first time. Somehow we get like. A little beat where Victoria mentioned Amy's trigger that um, Victoria was injured. She got hurt somehow and Amy triggered. Trying to help her. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the first like 
canonical mention of how Amy has triggered in in the story. Um, I, I did a little research on this, and there is a word of God or or just some posts by Wild Bill kind of going into a little bit more detail on Amy's trigger. Not much more detail, but a little bit more detail. So this is like the first mention of this in the story, and, and I think this is something we're probably going to explore pretty extensively going forward. So um, we're just kind of laying the seeds of this a little bit. And it it's just like one short sentence, like a blink and you'll miss it thing. And I and I did. Um, and then I was a reread. I was like, oh, that's that's important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was I wasn't sure if that was new information or not, because I think that was in my brain somewhere due to having read that word of God. But yeah, this is uh, it's it's a it's a cool piece of information. Yeah. We're, we're, it's also telling, I think, that Victoria doesn't really linger on it. Like like this. Yeah. This fact is kind of inconsequential to her. And it's like it's like, dear God, Victoria, like this. The, the, it proves to you how much she cares about you, right? <laughs> like, well, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's maybe why she doesn't linger on it yeah. because the relationship between these two girls is so complicated. It's so wrapped yeah. up in 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 years of of guilt and and um, friendship and love, and it, it's so it's such it's such a mess. It's such a mess. Yeah, it's it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, so as she's flying looking for Cole Belcher, she's having all these issues. She's struggling. We're not entirely sure what she's struggling about because yeah. she she can't quite she's not putting her finger on it for us. So basically when she reaches him, she tries to wheedle a deal with him despite his resistance. First she tries to verify that he's not a murderer or a rapist, and since he kind of convinces her that he's not, kind of, uh she tells him that she'll make sure he gets out and doesn't get nabbed by teacher if he keeps an eye on Natalie. And she, what it turns out, what's been bothering her is that she feels that putting this level of pressure on Natalie is monstrous, which is a word that she uses several times here. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a big deal, Matt. Victoria is kind of breaking her rules here. She's helping a bad guy and, and, and kind of putting a bad guy in the way, in, in line to someone she cares about. Like her, her mission has always been to protect the the helpless from the bad people. And now she's kind of steering one right towards one. Um, and I think this is different from the, the goddess related helping of bad guys. She's been doing these past couple chapters because this doesn't feel like compulsion driven, right? This is Victoria acting over concern for people, um, concern for Natalie, concern for what's going to happen next. And so I, this is a, a different kind of action. And, you see her kind of react very negatively to the fact that she has to do it. Um, she, she does attempt to hedge her bets, right? She's like, well, you're not a murderer or a rapist, right? And he's like, no. And he gives kind of a, probably a, a very influenced sob story about why he's in prison, about that, that he had a rival and yeah, he beat him up, but it wasn't too bad. Uh, it's probably, probably all bullshit, but, um, she, she tries to hedge her bets against that, but, but, but she makes the choice consciously knowing that he's not, a very good person and she's sending this not very good person um to help her friend yeah or or something right i mean she she has very little trust that this will actually even work out the way she hopes but yeah it's a it's a hail mary is what it really yeah. is she's she's like well i i need i need guidance i yeah i like there's no there's this is just going to get worse if i don't get steer steering from someone who's who's right in the head and so she's she's like basically willing to take this risk and she's with full awareness putting Natalie at risk. I do wonder if she's not maybe underestimating Natalie a little bit here. 
Um, Possibly, Because she's yeah. basically thinking of Natalie as like an innocent, which, I mean, she is, but she's also someone who's demonstrated some grit. So Yeah, she seizes those moments, Matt. Yep, she does. But yeah, I mean, th- this use of the word monstrous, um, this is a very loaded word in the parahumans universe. Um, it, it, this is how Taylor described herself there at the end. I remember when she was forgetting her name and there was one of it, it she thought it started with an M and, and the, the consensus among the readership was that she was calling herself a monster in these moments. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this is a big, a big deal. Um, this is a big moment for Victoria and she says it wasn't lawful, right or good to be the person who decided he got away for his crime, but she's doing it. And the thing about Victoria is her sense of morality has always been pretty black and white, I think, um, as, as opposed to our, our protagonist in the last book. She doesn't she's not at home in the gray. She likes clear right and wrong. She likes good and bad. And she she doesn't want to deal in that the murkiness of that. So this idea, this this idea that the situation is forcing, like letting one free to save many um for the sake of everyone doing one bad thing is something that is not really as it's not as comforting to Victoria. And it's kind of like this, this equation feels very worm esque to me, right? Like that she's put in the situation where she has to weigh between doing one bad thing to, for an overall net good. Um, it's, it's like the world is pushing her into this place that she's not comfortable. Like Cauldron was very happy in this world. Uh, decisions like that were just common sense to Taylor, but to Victoria, it's monstrous. And I love that distinction. I love how different it, like the the world is pushing her into something that she doesn't want to do, but she feels like she has to. And it is not, it is not near as easy for her to live in that world than it is our other protagonist. Yeah. There's, you can not with too much difficulty, put yourself in the frame of mind where you're just like, what's the problem? (laughs) You're, You're letting one guy out of jail in exchange for solving this whole situation, potentially. It's like, yeah, that's not the way Victoria thinks about things. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's not, that's not her mindset. She doesn't look at things like that and she's forced to, Yeah, and she does it like, I mean, to, to her credit, like she recognizes the need and makes the choice and does it. But yeah, it is, it is not easy. But it's one of those things that makes her such a great character is that she has this integrity and, and even even when she's so kind of adrift and her very like reasoning process is corrupted, she's still sticking to this integrity as much as she possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we were back in our being unfair to Taylor days, um, people kind of would look at my what they perceived as my rigid sense of morality and say that I would never survive in a world like this where the choices are like this. And I think part of the reason why I'm enjoying Victoria so much is kind of, I think we're getting to kind of live that like, like how does someone with this, um, inflexible of, uh, state survive and it's, they get a little more flexible. <laughs> so what you're saying is in your face, everyone? No, no, I oh, would never, no. I'd never do that. No, okay. Just checking. All right. <laughs> um, so the chapter ends, with Cryptid arriving at the main gate with Amy and also Goddess's missing cluster mate. I don't think I've ever gone from yay to oh no so quickly. I was like, yay, Chris. Oh, fuck. Amy's back. Amy, go, go away. Yeah. Go, go away. Yeah. 
This made me think of the scene from What About Bob when he's like, he never leaves. Look. And he opens the door and Bob's still just standing there. She's still there. She's not going to go away. You know, I, I realized something happened in this in this pair of chapters for me, which which is that I went from just kind of tacitly assuming that Amy wasn't mind whammied to tacitly assuming that she was. <laughs> With, with no with no new information. It was just like my perspective on it shifted. And I was like, you know, everything in her behavior prior to this actually is perfectly explicable as um, her being aligned with goddess. But maybe goddess was telling her to not be a yes man. Like that's I mean, I think there's some there's an argument to be had there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that to me, I think that takes away from like the, the mistakes that Amy has made, like it, it it takes some of the edge off of it a little bit. If it's like the, the, the way Amy handled the situation with Victoria, the, the way she, um, handled the conversations and the confrontations and and the fact that she just didn't get out of there. Um, it, it takes away from it a bit because it makes it more controlled and out of her hands. Like it kind of removes the blame from her a little bit. And I don't, I don't want it to do that because I, I want, and maybe this is just wishful thinking. I'm not saying that the book is actually doing this, but I, I want to, I want, I want this to be Amy's fault and I want her to recognize it at her, as her fault and not have a, a scapegoat for that um, to kind of to push it off to someone else to, to live with that fault and to maybe hopefully have some realizations from it. And I worry that like just saying, and I kind of agree with you that, that, you know, why wouldn't she use her stuff on Amy? That doesn't make sense. That seems very ungoddess to just choose not to control someone. But I don't know. Maybe it could just be wishful. Thinking. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. I mean, I, I can see we're getting we're getting fairly conjectury here. But but I, I can <laughs> I can basically see like the mistakes that she's made in her recent interactions with Victoria were not had nothing to do with like serving goddesses interests. That's they true. were things that she would have done anyway, I think. That's so, true. So it could it could be both. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. It could be she's still a, a fucking idiot that that doesn't that doesn't fully understand what she did and doesn't fully understand um what it did to Victoria. Even though she's a person with the best intentions, she makes continually makes bad choices. Um and also still be compulsed by goddess to continue to be at these situations. Yes, I believe someone in the Reddit said that uh, Amy must have a path to worst possible choice power. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that was in last week's Reddit yeah. or the week before. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next chapter, 9.13. Right. Um, so Victoria and the team, plus Monokeros and Damsel, are sent down into the tunnel. The lighting splits Victoria's shadow into six, which narrow to two as she enters. And it's a long, narrow tube, and there are many things about it that make it a tactical nightmare. Yeah, tactically nightmarish, but metaphorically beautiful. The tunnel stabs out. This is the way Wildwood describes it. The tunnel stabs out into the direction of the front gate, into the direction of Teacher and of Amy. Victoria, a person divided, is casting six shadows, but but when she heads down towards her goal, when she heads down to her direction, the number of shadows shrinks, shrinks almost as if she's she's gathered them together and gained focus towards her goal, her mission. It's 
God, it's so yeah. good. It's such a good opening paragraph. Yeah, all of her Victoria personalities coalescing. Right, as she, exactly. As she heads down the straight line toward the target. It's awesome. Yep. It's fantastic. Yep. Uh, there's a brief semi-comic exchange as everybody offers to lead, and then Victoria shuts them down. It's like, no, I'm, I'm leading. I was uh, just shut up. Um, <laughs> Tristan then makes large riot shields to be held up by Victoria and by himself. And the two of them take point. Yeah, let's talk about Damsel here for a bit. Let's talk about Slashley. Okay. As we're calling her. I, I was I was first, I'm not going to lie, when it, when I saw her kind of, I saw tracks being laid that she's going to take a more active role in the story proper, I was a little concerned. And I'm still not entirely sold on the idea, but um, I do think she's really great here. <laughs> And I think someone someone on Discord pointed out, and again, I, I'm sorry, I apologize, I don't remember who it was, but pointed out last week that it's interesting that while Damsel is is posturing in a very like old Ashley-like way, she hasn't actually done anything aggressive or violent. She hasn't even tried to, at least as far as we can tell. Like, this conversation is hilarious, but she's pretty just like abruptly told no, you don't get to lead no, you're not in charge. And she just deals with it. Yeah. We talked before about how Damsel, how Slashley is like the perfect foil for Ashley, how how her twin can represent a mirror in which we can measure her recovery, measure how much she's changed. I think that still could and is the case, but but increasingly I'm seeing this as something a little bit more interesting, a little bit more complicated. What if with the two damsels, instead of seeing one on the road to the recovery and one stagnant, what if we're seeing just two different paths to recovery? Because recovery is this complex thing and, and everyone has their own route to get there. Everyone has their own issues they need to get over or get over is a bad word. Issues they need to, to deal with and find a way to live with. Um, and, and no two roads look the same. So I think instead of stagnant and and change, we can see these two people as different kinds of change. And And when we look at it in that lens, I am so, so into it. Yeah, me too. There, there's a moment uh, later, I don't think I pulled out, where uh, Victoria just snaps at her um, yeah. and she and she kind of takes it yet again. So I think there's quite a bit of evidence here that this is not the Slaughterhouse-Nine member, member Damsel of Distress who was on, on the verge of just snapping all the time. Um, yeah. A, a lot of... She seems to be channeling that need to posture, but... Uh, you know, productively the same way that 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 Swan Song does, but um, well, in her own way. So yeah, not the same, but yeah. Know. And I and I think there are multiple beats throughout this, the rest of this chapter that reinforce this idea, right? That that this damsel is not um, the Slaughterhouse Nine one. It is not the Ashley we saw back in her interludes. Um, it, this this one has changed as well, mm-hmm. and and we don't know. We don't know the details of that change. We can speculate on it, but it's it's way more interesting than I originally gave it credit for. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to focus on here is that Victoria is holding up that shield, Matt, mm-hmm. and she's using the wretch. Mm-hmm. So she's in this small, confined tunnel right next to people she cares about and also uh, Monacaros. Um <laughs> And and she has the wretch out constantly, not just like brief moments. Just like she she has it out, 
And I, I love this because the, the book basically forces this situation, right? Like she's in a tunnel. She has to hold a really heavy shield. So the book kind of contrives a reason for her to have the wretch out. But because this plot contrivance matches up with Victoria's mental transformation that occurred over the last few chapters, like it feels totally earned, right? It's not just like a, a thing happens out of necessity. It feels earned in relation to her, her coalescing of identities. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's been, um, the, the, I, I couldn't be happier about the way she's gradually come to some degree of acceptance yeah. with the wretch. It, it's just so beautifully done. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the book is forcing that acceptance to, to be displayed by putting her in situations like this where, Hey, guess what? Gotta, gotta keep the wretch out for a long time now. It's necessary. Sorry. Um, it's, it's the most risky place for it to be out, but you're going to have to do it. And she doesn't really have a long, like, or, or really any of, of that internal monologue of like the, the negative, the negative thoughts and feelings that come along with the wretch, the right. dysphoria, what it reminds her of flashes of memories. It's just like, yep, we need the wretch to carry this because it's heavy. That's what yeah, I mean, it's for. Monacaros is there, who is a person that didn't know the existence of this thing. Um, I guess you can assume that the damsel did through our Ashley knew about the existence of the wretch, but, but she is just using it. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's not something that can't be seen because the wretch is carrying a shield. Mm-hmm. So it's like, the, it's like there's a shield floating in front of her. There's something going on here. There's, and, and yeah, she's fine with it. I mean, she, she definitely has, cringes and audible or, or, or visual reactions to when the wretch kind of like digs at the corner of the tunnel or kind of crushes the shield a little bit like where she seems to lose control of it she she cringes but it's that's much less of a oh my god this this disgusting part of me cringe and more of a um I, i'm struggling like this thing is still not really in my control cringe yeah right like uh, yeah more like i wish I, I, I wish i could control it better yeah i agree uh, so as they're entering the situation, um, Kenzie mentions offhand that her cameras can, or at least potentially could, track uh, track social relationships. Which, uh, sure, why not? Great, that's what we need—a fucking Facebook camera. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Kenzie. I, I love how everyone's freaking out about that one, but we have poor Monacaros over here. Like, wait, wait, past camera? That was like four arcs ago, Unicorn Lady. Matt, someone's not caught up on her reading. No, it's, it's not going to help her. But I, I like like this is it's such a little tiny little beat, but I think it's so cinematic. Like she said she can take pictures of the past and you're focusing on that. Monacaros asked dry. Uh, yeah, Rain said the rest of us nodded. And I can see that scene like I can see I, I say this so often in the in this. And I think it's just because Wadbo is such a visual writer that the, these scenes kind of unfold before me in a very movie like fashion i can see the camera like tilt after rain says it and then like tilt to the rest of the group in the background and all of them just like slowly nodding and it's just this wonderful comedic beat that i can totally see and i I love it so much yeah yeah me too i I agree about the cinematic thing there's a moment later on where i think i'm definitely going to want to talk about the the end of the the whole the whole ending scene of the chapter yeah Yeah. the whole ending sequence uh yeah um so kind of at, at around this point, there's just a moment where everybody kind of chimes in. Not everybody, but a few people chime in and clarify that they hate Monacaros and would be fine if she died. Yeah, I mean, t- to be fair, it's the same Z's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so Kinsey 
shows them some footage of Kingdom Come and presumably Blindside entering the tunnel along with one of the prisoners, so they kind of know what they're getting into. Victoria gives everyone a primer on the f- on fighting Blindside and what to do. Shortly afterward, um, she feels a resistance to moving forward and then kind of tries to drop her shield, hoping it'll fall on Blindside, but no such luck. I, was it dropping? Like I kind of felt like she was like flying forward really fast and then like release the wretch so it's it, like she kind of threw it at him i wasn't sure basically i wasn't sure if she had already decelerated due to the fact that she um was feeling the resistance and thus it would be more of a drop or if she was still actually uh had like had forward velocity you know so yeah, yeah it's, it's sure. semantics she she threw a big rock at him yeah, tried to didn't, <laughs> and it missed didn't, didn't work and i, I don't yeah. i don't think it could have worked you know yeah. i mean i get what she was trying to do but yeah yeah uh, Blindside takes the opportunity to characterize themselves. Yeah, and he's such an interesting guy, isn't he? He 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 once again like prefaces everything by warning everyone that if they try to look too hard, their necks are gonna break. He doesn't want to kill people. He's just a mercenary and he has a job to do. And he doesn't even really want to fight. He's just like, look, I could kill you all right now. Just go leave and we don't we don't have to do this he's crude he's kind of offensive but he's i kind of like him like he, he's just he's just a, a mercenary yeah i mean it's it's true that they could just like open fire on this crowd of people and there's nothing that that the heroes could do in response but instead they're like you know really really like you're, you're not gonna win like i just i know you're not gonna win you're not yeah. going to get past me. Just go, just turn around. And, and then he tr- basically tries to talk them out of it, then charges them and tases one of them, um, <laughs> but doesn't take it farther than that. And like, yeah. yeah, like, like fairly restrained actually. So I think that that is kind of a likable treat in your, in your mercenaries. Yeah. So next damsel suggests that the others are just planning on leaving blindside behind the other uh, teacher people. And I, I like that, Kenzie seems aghast and says, you weren't that kind of person, right? And Damsel responds, I never did it, no, but power makes people callous. I might have. And I like this, again, because this is Damsel talking, not Swan Song, mm-hmm. and it suggests something about the manner in which this Ashley has been growing as a person and, and reflecting on and facing things about her past. Yeah, exactly. Even this Ashley is is introspective. There's an argument to be made. Like we we talked about those two paths to recovery. I wonder like how much of this change in damsel is, is because of her interaction with Swan Song. I don't remember how long Ashley's been in the prison. It's time is relative in this book. Like it's like, it's been, it's been like, I still think it's been only like 36 hours since the the broadcast. So it's still been like the worst fucking couple days for for victoria yeah. ever but I, I do wonder if it was this damsel a path to change on her own or is this swan song having an effect on her sister is this is this her interaction and her kind of talking with her and spending time with her and and, and thinking through things together thinking through their weaknesses together that's rubbing off on her I don't know. She seemed slightly mellower when she when Ashley went back to prison and met her. But yeah, that's but, true. But that might have just been because it was her sister. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So they continue to try to spar with blindsight. Doesn't work. 
I mean, <laughs> tries to tase Capricorn, doesn't work, tases Rain instead. <laughs> and the text says poor Rain. Yeah. And that's like exactly what's my thought, too. It's just like Capricorn makes a move, tries to get chased. Oh, it doesn't work. I guess I'll go for the next best thing. Here's this guy. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, um, I'm enjoying the role he's currently filling in the story. I, I I look forward to the story getting more serious with him and, and jumping back into some of his challenges to come. But for right now, this works. I laughed. It's great. More of this. Yes. Um, Damsel saves the day, pulling out her badass ultimate finishing move and holding up a contained sphere of her annihilation power, uh, threatening to just kind of like release it and blow everything away. But in the end, even this Ashley won't put Kenzie at risk and the, t- the team ends up retreating back to the surface at Victoria's yeah. order. Man, more instances of, of her changing, right? Like, I, I think this is just because I've, I'm in love with my two paths to recovery, you know, kind of examination so much that I'm just seeing it everywhere. But I really do love this. this we're getting little hints and clues that she is different mm-hmm. and she cares about Kenzie and her caring about Kenzie might just come from a promise she made to Ashley. I don't know, but it's still there. It also strikes me that if she knew Kenzie's story, then she would also care about Kenzie for the same reason that right. Swan Song does, which is that she relates to her. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but we we have to we do have to say that that her, the physical nature of her, how she looks physically, is representative of the fact that she is approaching becoming better or um, moving on or living her life in in a fundamentally different way than Ashley is, but still seems like she's moving towards something good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So before we move on, I just want to talk about our team lost. Like they lost this fight. They went against blindside and they had to turn around and leave and find a new way. And I really love this because like this is, blindside's element right like he's in a a straight line tube standing there and all he has to do is stand there and he wins because they need to get by him and so like i think it would be almost unrealistic for a team to be able to actually like beat him in this situation so they can't beat him they just like have to like blindside him (laughs) are you you mean you mean sneak around the back scott yes yeah exactly yeah but I just I just love that the book was willing to just be like, OK, look, we lost this. Let's retreat and come up with another way. I think I think sometimes in in especially in like superhero stories or, or power stories, you're kind of so afraid of making your character seem weak that you don't want them to lose. And I don't think Wildboat does that. And I think this is a good example of that. It's like sometimes sometimes they just lose. Mm-hmm. And this is another example of that, especially when you're you're up against a guy who is in his element. Like this is this blindside's power and a, a straight line tube that he wants people to not get to the other side of is like the perfect instance of him to use his power. Yeah, right. And and it's it's a situation where um, I don't know. I'm I'm imagining like I, I don't want to make too many Taylor comparisons. Seems like. I think we do a good job not making too many Taylor comparisons, but like seems like Taylor would have been like, I, I'm going to find out a way. I, I'm going to figure out a way of beating this person. Yeah. Going to, I'm going to get through this person. Whereas Victoria is kind of able to just be like, okay, all right, we'll, we'll back off. You know, you win this round. Like she doesn't have a lot of ego in it, which I, yeah. which is a, a good, good character trait for a hero. 
Matt, I thought of a fun game, and I don't know if, if the game's good or not, because I think it invites too much warm comparison for our tastes, but I think a fun game would be to take situations, complex situations in which Victoria finds herself in the story, and kind of, what would Taylor doing, like, uh, out of that situation? Mm-hmm. Like, if Taylor was placed in this exact same situation, how would she solve it? I think that would be a fun thing to do. Um, again, I don't want to get too too rolled up in in comparing these two books and these two characters, but I think that's just fun to kind of explore Taylor's personality a bit. Yeah. Because I think you're right. She would have approached this whole thing very different. I think part of the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm careful not to do it too much is that it's, it's tempting to do because these two protagonists are, are so, are so different. Um, but speaking to so many of the same themes that, you you do want to see, you know you could even play the opposite game and say how would Victoria respond to yeah um, Slaughterhouse Nine coming into her town she'd probably get melted oh um, <laughs> ouch. ouch yeah well um, but see that was I, old Victoria and I think that's the point she's learned she's much more cautious now I will say that when we first started I was much more concerned about not comparing back to Worm too much because I I wanted I, like this is a new book it's a different thing. Um, I don't, I don't want to rely too much on the old book to make direct comparisons to this book, but the, the further we've explored the story in this world, they are like, they're linked. Like they're, it is, it is not the same theme. They're not the same characters, but they're themes playing off the themes of the old thing. They're characters playing off the characters of the old book. So, I mean, like, I think it's a little disingenuous to, to deny that there is, direct relationship between these stories it is not a sequel it is not like an anthology type sequel where it's new characters same world um it is it is absolutely a continuation of the story and should be treated as such yeah i think i agree with you completely yeah i i don't think i've ever like avoided a taylor comparison because i you know just for the sake of avoiding it so yeah oh i have i definitely have (laughs) when we were starting out like the first few arcs yeah i was very i was very conscious about overdoing that and and held back fair enough yeah. i definitely recently less so yeah that was like five years ago or something i don't really remember what my it was, it was almost were. a year ago believe it or not it yeah. was january i know it's ridiculous yeah <laughs> um okay so they as you say they try to blindside blindside kenzie starts using her system to try to locate the tunnels from the surface yeah it's great mm-hmm. they they blind they blindside him yep that's um, my joke. And there's there's uh, there's a little interplay here where they're talking about a lot of other a lot of things. Basically, there's some some. There's a lot of rambling and and like interteam ba- comedy. Yeah, yeah there yeah. you go. That's the word. That's the banter. word we're both both fumbling <laughs> for. Um, and Monica Rose, I missed out on the tweens between Monica Rose said wistfully. I liked them from what little I saw of them. They had Moxie. Oh, hey, another fan. Moxie is a great way of... Lookout said. She stopped, working for a second, looking up. No, wait, hey. That's awful, huh? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Which, like, th- that's great because she's, like, laughing, and it's which means she's yeah. terribly disturbed. Yeah, it's, she's just so hor- horrified right now. Yeah. And I don't blame her. Oh, my God. Yeah. I like Monacaris is going to become a problem, right? Like, I mean, like we're mostly like being ominous with her and then like playing her for 
a little bit of comedic jokes here and there, but like she's attached to look out and and is not going to be letting her go. So uh, this is this is absolutely something that is like in the background of all this is this is going to be a situation we're going to have to deal with this soon. And I'm enjoying the funny while I have it because it's going to go horror really soon, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I'm worried about this situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's this next bit where we're just kind of underlining this this theme that's going on with Victoria. For a moment, it was all I could do just to keep my equilibrium, stay calm, and try not to think. 110%. It's not about being the warrior monk. It's about being all of it, getting to where every part of me functions and functions well. So yeah, we're we're revisiting this idea that she... And and she's not just we, but she is revisiting this idea to herself that it's about integrating the different parts of her and being a whole person. Yeah, the thing the thing I love so much about this new kind of self actualization strategy that Victoria has is how like inherently flexible it is Um, when she was just trying to capture this idea of the warrior monk. She'd fall down these thinking rabbit holes and kind of zone out and then the fact that she fell down these rabbit holes and thought back of old old trauma and old things would make her feel guilty and make her feel like she's failing to live up to the warrior monk and it would just be kind of this vicious cycle that would that would spin out of control um here she's now created or 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 realized these four distinct personalities that she is like inhabiting simultaneous and and she's willing to kind of roll with it right like so if a situation requires warrior monkness she'll like spin into that one um if if she's in a moment where she's struggling and and thinking the the act of thinking is actually detrimental to her she can roll into one of the other personalities and not feel that guilt from not achieving them it's like it's like she's she's adaptable now she's flexible she can she can roll with things more adjust on the fly and and doesn't get bogged down in the stuff and and there there are dangerous parts of this too potentially like there's this you push yourself away from the personality that would do the right thing in this moment to go for one that allows you to get through it. Like there, I see a dangerous side of this, but for now I, I really like it. I really like that. She's able to just navigate these complex situations and like, she's still struggling, but she's able to recover from it in ways that we haven't seen before. Yeah. I got nothing to add to that. That was perfect. I agree. Cool. So they find the location where they're going to need to dig, and Damsel uses her enhanced power to annihilate the ground quickly and efficiently. Victoria muses on how this enhanced and in-control power of Ashley's relates to the possibility of her perhaps gaining that kind of control over her own power. She thinks, the power geek in me wanted to spend hours thinking about what that meant, drawing an analogy between Swan Song and Damsel, and me and something else. What what that something else? Uh, sorry, was that something I could chase? Something I should chase? Wow, Matt, I love that. We we're I, so we're taking this this talk about damsel and Ashley that we've had, and tying this directly into Victoria and her stuff. The, we have these two people who went two different ways, made two different choices, and again, up until this chapter, I thought that the book was telegraphing that Ashley made the right choices. Ashley went the right way and, and, and damsel slashly went the wrong way. And I'm not going to sit here and say that Ashley 
isn't great. She is. I love her so much. Please don't die, Ashley. Um, but I, I love now we've kind of seen that Slashley is is much more like much let like she's much more like the old damsel than swan song is she is changing she is different um victoria looked at her a couple of chapters ago and 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 could see this person she said in her eyes she could see the person that was a member of the slaughterhouse nine right there right there in her look and maybe she still is that person on some level but i don't think that's quite all she is yeah and and plus plus i mean if we're really look at Ashley comprehensively, she was barely a Slaughterhouse Nine member in the first place. Right. Right. <laughs> she she was not a typical uh member. Um and and this is that person, you know. Right. This is right. the person who died regretting her choices. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I think I, I love that Victoria sees this imp- approved control. She kind of sees this path that Damsel took. This choice that Damsel made. Um, Damsel chose to keep the deformity that Bonesaw built into her that allowed her to control her power better. She made that choice. She made the choice to stay like that. Swansong did not. Swansong rejected that choice. Swansong wanted to kind of be more human and less less monstrous, let's say. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's that's where we see the payoff of last chapter's talk of monstrousness right like victoria is questioning like she sees this control of power and part of her wants it she wants to be able to have that level of control over over the rich and maybe what the book is 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 positing to us is is like embracing the more monstrous side of yourself is that the way to achieve that is that the way to get to that level of control and is that worth it yeah i mean i i think I think we've seen evidence that it's going to be maybe more nuanced even than just like embracing the monstrousness. It's like, well, the monstrousness is part of you. Right. You, 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 you're sort of being disingenuous by trying to reject it. If you, if you can't actually reject it. So find a way to integrate it in a healthy way, whatever that looks like. And that's going to look different for each person, I think. Yeah. And that's, and that's why I love this idea of damsel as a different road. Right. Because maybe that's what she's doing. Maybe what Ashley did was reject that side of her and find a way to recovery that rejects that thing. And it is difficult for it is very difficult for her. She is still struggling with it. She was afraid to fight lung for fear of going too far again. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so maybe damsel represents a different way, but a way that could be successful. And, And Victoria could could go down that route and and achieve success that way get get to a place of recovery get to a place of happiness of of some form of content with her life and who she is and and what she is and what happened to her Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know but i I just like the possibilities are there and and we've taken a character who last week i said man matt i don't know i don't know what damsel has left or rather ashley i don't know what ashley has left i think she's gonna die and we've taken her and we've added this wrinkle to it that that kind of reignites um, the potential in these two twin clones that I I'm fascinated with, and I can't wait to can't wait to see how it pays off. Yeah, yeah, this is it's fascinating because I, I don't think m- much of this occurred to me consciously while reading, um, but yeah, it's really it's really cool ideas. Yeah, I, I agree. This was something that did not kind of jump out at me really until I went in and started analyzing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so um, damsel gets them close. 
uh, to the uh, to the top of the tunnel. Rain weakens the last of the barrier with his with his lines. Antares breaks through, followed by Capricorn to seal off the rear so Blindside can't catch up with him. Basically, it's just an awesome moment of collaborative teamwork. Yeah, and, and Lookout's the one that told them where it was. Yep. So yeah, each and each and every one of them plays a role in this moment, um, and it's it's really great. <laughs> it's really great. I love it. Yeah, and and so th- this I think this is like the, the velocity of the scene began there actually. Right. Uh, the, yeah. And or the momentum is maybe the better word, and, and then it can it continues on and even accelerates as they they blitz into the bunker at the end of the tunnel, um, and. Then the scene is into into the underground bunker, past a room with ten bunk beds, past a kitchen, and into the larger room, into the situation. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that the pace like kicks up a notch, right? Yeah. Like they, they drop down in here, and we both like fast forward and then slow motion, and yeah. like we're doing kind of like start and stops, and I think that really accentuates um, the the impact of these moments. Yeah, because this is like a big, big moment here. Yeah. So Victoria, after like rushing through that, takes a few paragraphs to process everything she's seeing. And the way it's written gives you this sense that it's all happening in like a matter of a fraction of a second. Like she's flicking her eyes across the scene and she's perceiving all of these things that she's listing out to you. She notes the other prisoner, Thane who's using some tech and an elaborate chair to try to do something involving the console and the, and the machinery that's there. She notes Tress um, of far more consequence out of her armor, her tendrils going nuts, um, and she's streaked with blood. And, of course, the first thing we think is a big fat uh-oh. Yeah, exactly. And the weird thing is we know Kingdom comes down there, right? Mm-hmm. But still the first thing that jumped in your mind when you see Sveta tendrils lashing out is she killed someone didn't she 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 lost control and killed someone her suit was damaged her tendrils got out people are dead yeah and sveta did it and it's the worst possible thing that could happen it's like out, out of everything that could happen to this poor girl this is the worst and you're just like oh no yeah it's just it's just that that's slightly more like available to your mind than like oh yeah kingdom come just trying to control her but can't and right it's having trouble yeah so yeah, Victoria thinks that too. So you know, it's not it's not it's not just our fault. The text is leading us to think that because we see right. her, we see her thinking but not thinking that Sveta has killed everybody. I love how that's done because uh, I'm just gonna read it. Victoria's head turned my way by a rotation and flexibility that, that a normal neck didn't have. Her face was streaked in blood. Her eyes were wide, and she was lost in herself in a way that broke my heart to see. That heartbreak stopped when I saw a grouping of tendrils move, but it wasn't a good stopping. It was sudden, numbing shock that stopped all other feelings, thoughts, and processes. The grouping of tendrils all grasped the same thing, a lump of of a shape in black fabric. Blood streaked the smooth ground where the fabric touched it. So, So basically, she's not thinking Sveta killed someone, right? She's, she's, make, she's making these observations that obviously can, like, the dots connect to form the picture of Sveta killed someone. Yeah. But I, I love that Victoria can't actually think the thought to herself. Yeah, she can't, Verbal- quote unquote, say it. Yeah, yeah. verbalize, yeah. yeah, whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're right. And and the writing here is so good. I love, like, there. it's it's one thing to build great moments in books. It's another, I think, to have the awareness and the recognition that this is a big moment and to tailor your writing 
towards recognizing that. I think we said this once before when we talked about the Kenzie dinner scene where it's very clear going into this that, you know, this is a big, all important moment um, because the writing reflects that. I think you look at what you just read and that's what you see here. Like this is big. It is important. It is a moment in this book that we we think we're about to have and the writing measures that mm-hmm. and I, I just love it so much I love the heartbreak stopped when I saw a grouping of tendrils move but it wasn't a good stopping mm-hmm. I, I love that so much yeah I, I I agree I love how this moment was was set up and how it's executed um and yeah and I it importantly it doesn't feel like a trick right like like the book isn't tricking us we think this Victoria thinks this and then we realign our thoughts a little bit later. It's not like, haha, it's not a gotcha. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a realistic kind of earned expression of of everyone's worst fear when it comes to Sveta. Yeah, and, and I also like that there it's not like a full relief when you find out, oh, it's just Kingdom Come. It's like, no, it's Sveta's body outside of its shell, not in control of itself, still a hazard. Uh, and, and, yeah. and, and still bad for Sveta as a person. Um, yeah, I mean, it, she's going to be feeling the, the after effects of, of that lost control. That's mm-hmm. not going to do well for her. And, and I mean, I don't think we, there's any indication here, but God, can you imagine what would happen, would have, would have happened if Kingdom Come did gain control and then since he couldn't control it, Sveta did kill someone and it was not her, it was not her doing, it was Kingdom Come's fault, but how that would still weigh on on her yeah right it, it wouldn't it would wouldn't be good yeah because i mean in her mind i can very easily see it just being like look i mean i put myself in a situation where i could be mastered and then my body right. was used for that so it's my yep. responsibility and yep. that's i think that's how she would see it i mean if she doesn't draw like she doesn't make the distinction between i killed someone when i was in control of my body like she already doesn't make that distinction she already says no that was me i was responsible for it um and it it eats me up inside that it happened so a master power making her do that. I don't think she's going to make that distinction either. I don't think she's going to divorce herself from blame there either. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah, um, finally, we and the text and Victoria all realize that it's kingdom come. Oh, thank God. Um, when when he throws his giblet filled clothing at her, actually. So he, <laughs> he's actually like trying to tell her that, I think. Like yeah. it may even be that he's like freaking out. <laughs> like I can't control this thing. Help. Um, yeah, I mean, we saw him in in like in the body of the guy that was dying, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like freaking out because it's it's scary and painful, and yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I think you I think you're probably spot on there. Yeah, uh, Thane, uh, the the other guy, the Tinker, seems to have been using some tech to keep Sveta at bay, some kind of force field. Um, Rain disables it by kicking it repeatedly. Um, <laughs> there, out of boy, Rain. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. That he just it's just like not even using his power. He's just kicking it repeatedly. <laughs> um, and then they get a message on the radio, uh, presumably from someone teacher affiliated saying, leave her with nothing. And kingdom come then responds by moving inside or by, you know, by, by trying to make his way to, to the console to try to activate the bombs on this particular little glass covered panel, realizing that Tristan's attempts to keep the tendrils at bay with stone are not working. Victoria and Tristan share a look and tacitly agree on the need to take a risk. Byron emerges and floods the chamber, destroying the server. Yeah, so that's the choice they make in the end there, right? That that um, the idea of losing everyone 
is worth it to make sure that um, her, her, her friends don't get hurt or people don't die or have their legs exploded. Mm-hmm. So the sur- they, they make that choice and they make that choice silently. I love that. Th- like, this is such a, it's so good. It's show. Don't tell. It's like, it's so cinematic that you can see they, they just both look at each other and there's this nod and they both know what's going to happen. Or I think, I think actually what we see is, is Tristan just takes a deep breath, right? He just like takes this deep breath. And in this moment, Victoria knows exactly what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I love how the moment plays out. I can see it in my mind. I can see the scene in a movie. Um, it, it's such a wonderful culmination and it's such a great, wonderful way to end this chapter. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, can't wait for, for I don't know. Are we gonna wrap up Arc Nine? What do you think? Man, I don't know anymore. Yeah, I, I thought absolutely it's, sure, it's, but I, I don't yeah, know. It's pointless to guess, um, right? Um, yeah. All right, let's do a little but tiny I mean, bit. Of, go ahead. So I, I just like the choice that that was made is a big one, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the. The prison is officially gone, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the, it was being destroyed, but we've we've kind of officially said the server's down. Um, all these people are are freed now. There's nothing stopping all these people from escaping back into the world, and 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 they made that choice, and they they felt like they had to, and I think that's fair. Yeah, they've 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 wiped out the backup too. Yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely worth. We're saying, oh yeah, yeah, no one's coming too, right? That's the other thing. Yeah, no one's coming, and and this was, as far as we know, like as far as Victoria knows, and as far as we know, this is like teacher's backup plan. Now, right, I of course think the teacher has at least one more layer of backup plan on top of this. I'm sure he does. Um, Fucking guy. But but like, it's definitely a victory for you know the goddess forces uh, that that they're able to um, (laughs) that they're able to uh, to stop this from from working and and yeah i guess we could call that a good thing yeah it's a it's a win for our side look rain doesn't get his leg blown off so i'll I'll take it yeah yeah um okay awesome awesome two chapters let's do a little bit of name game all right so we had two new names we were introduced here and and i told someone we were going to do a name game of byron and tristan um we are going to go down that rabbit hole we're not going to do it this week uh, one, because I ran out of time, and two, because I think it feels better to do that on on the conclusion to our our, our Byron Tristan three beat of interludes that I still think is going to happen, Matt. Um, Sounds good so to we'll me. we'll save that for later. Let's yeah. do it that way. So okay. right now, though, Flens, which was the name of the uh, the young cape. Yeah. And I, I love how Victoria reacted to that name. <laughs> um, it means strip skin or fat from a carcass. So I'm sure he doesn't do that, right? Well, I mean, maybe this is Flay's alive, man. <laughs> that could it could be Flay's alive, man. Oh Jesus! Oh Chris, and your humor. Why can't things just be good and happy? I don't know the happy power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the other name is Thane, uh, in we- Anglo-Saxon England, it means a man who held land granted by the king, or by a military nobleman. Ranking between an ordinary freeman and a hereditary noble. Uh, and then in Scotland, slightly different, a man often the chief of a clan who held land from a Scottish king and ranked with an earl's son. So basically, it's kind of a English-slash-Scottish rank of of lowly gentry, I guess you could say. Yeah. yeah, and we don't really know anything about this guy. We might not learn anything else about him. He might be drowned, but... Um 
I think let's just keep that stuff in mind if we do learn more about him. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right. So now discussion question from this week. Pick a character and explain how they are the author of their own destruction. Yeah, this is kind of connected thematically to how we think that goddess is going to be the one to destroy herself. And um, I, I think I think this is not the first time this has happened and it's not going to be the last. And I'm curious what 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 we think about, like you destroy yourself is is saying about some of the the ideas around this book yeah yeah my my, a my only really other complicated way of explaining the thing that you said in one sentence <laughs> i'm a little verbose tonight it's, it's fine it's always good to clarify what the question means i think I, I have no problem with that um that said that's all we got for you this week and we've got ward you guys are all part of this show so feel free to provide us with advice questions or thoughts on this week's reading you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at GotWormPod. My personal Twitter is at ScottDaily85, and Matt's is at Flensthane. It's at Mordinamel. Mordinamel. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this and all the other podcasts we do over at doofmedia.com. We've got new episodes of our other shows, Vow to View, and the Doofcast coming out each and every week. And uh, we're going to have a new episode of Weaver Dice one day. We were just talking about that the other day, and we need to we need to get that out. Uh, it's coming. Promise. It's in the can. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, it's in four separate cans that need to be combined into one can and then edited down to be a a not so huge size can with background noise in it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, that's right, Scott. And if you want to support any of our shows, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contest, costume contest, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. Special thanks to new uh, Bidoof donor Eric P. at the $5 level and Doof Warrior Zachary S. at the $20 level. Thanks so much, y'all. Yeah, thanks, guys. That's awesome. Um, You guys are awesome. Um, And as always, make sure you go over to Wildbow's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildbow. Donate to him as well because this is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating and a review. We have two reviews this week, Matt. First comes from Andres, Andre Perez327, who gives us five stars and says, incredibly satisfying way to revisit this awesome web, web serial. Would definitely recommend if you love the story of Worm. Also, Geekling713 also gives us five stars and says, like Scott, I am a first time reader and I've really enjoyed having this as my companion piece. This analysis is very thorough and I, and have been a great springboard for my conversations with people who got me to read worm in the face first place. It's also really fun to follow along with Scott's speculations, comparing and contrasting them with my own. It makes me sad when I can't listen to any more episodes because I've haven't finished the next arc, but I look forward to catching up and participating in the community discussions as new episodes are released. Wow. Those are some really nice reviews. Thanks both of you. And thanks to everyone who has taken the time to go over to Apple Podcasts and leave those rating and reviews. They really do help. Um, they make us look way more legit. And also Apple, like 
algorithms around like spotlighting and showing podcasts is based on how many people rate and review it. It's it's a weird nebulous thing that we're not we don't see all of it, but we do know that more reviews equals good. So thank you for doing that, everyone. Yeah, thanks. And it always makes me feel really good when someone tells us that that we're actually enhancing their reading experience. Um, Yeah, that means the world to me. That's 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 the goal, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's great that we're we're achieving that to some people. Yeah. All right. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week to cover more Ward. We know that there's at least one more gleaming chapter, but will there be two or three? Or you know what? I'm out of the speculation game. I'm not gonna say we'll be we'll be back. We'll be back. We'll be back. Goddess is Trump.